is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. This week, Big Island businessman Rajesh Budabadi is to make his first appearance in court. A hearing is set before Judge Ram Trader in federal court at 1 p.m. tomorrow. He's facing charges in an affordable housing scandal on the Big Island. The FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office announced the indictments of two attorneys last month, Paul Sula Jr. and Gary Zamber, along with the guilty plea of a housing a county official, Alan Ruto, in an elaborate scandal involving affordable housing credits. We talked to Pat Tummins, journalist with Environment Hawaii, who the U.S. Attorney credits with flagging the case nearly four years ago. She points to an odd transaction and questions about whether a company was a nonprofit or for-profit group. She was surprised to receive the credit from the feds because county officials began to wonder if anything would come of the FBI investigation after so many years. I started writing about this in 2018, and at the time, the housing administrator, Neil Giotoku, I had very little to do with him. You know, he seemed pleasant enough, but at that time, Alan Ruto was still working as a housing specialist within the county agency, and he was the one, actually, who presented me with the files that I had requested to review. And it became really clear when I was looking through those files that something was really rotten in Denmark. (laughs) or Waikoloa, as the case may be, and I started writing about it. I did not talk with Mr. Giotoku at all, apart from pleasantries as I went into the office. And then it turns out that it was my reporting that caused him to tip off the FBI, even though, as he admits, he did sign some of the later papers related to what the federal government is calling the Waikoloa scheme. So I did not know that it was my writing that caused him to call the FBI. Well, what was it exactly? You know, what documents were you looking at that flagged something was wrong? Well, there was a 700-some-acre parcel just outside of the town of Waikoloa that had been redistricted into the rural district in 2008, I believe. And around 2018, when really nothing had happened on this property, the State Land Use Commission started to have show-cause hearings as to why this land should not be reverted to agriculture. And it was at that time that the county put forward statements that had, they being the developers of this large parcel, had indeed complied with the county requirement to satisfy the conditions associated with providing affordable housing. And the developers had done so by carving off just short of 12 acres to be given to a nonprofit, as county law allows, to be used for the 80 units of affordable housing that were required to satisfy the housing condition. So it was when I started looking into the claim that they had indeed satisfied the housing requirement that I saw some really unusual transactions. The documents that I reviewed in the county housing office showed that at the very most, this 11-acre parcel, which is strangely configured, kind of like if you imagine the head of a monkey wrench. It's sort of shaped like that with a drainage channel running through it 
and easements all across it. And at most, it could hold about 32 units of housing. No one had ever bothered to put the brakes on this deal because it was nowhere near satisfying the number of units that were required. On top of that, the county law that deals with affordable housing says that if you're going to go the route of satisfying your housing obligations through land donation, the donation has to be either to the county itself or to a nonprofit, such as Habitat or Humanity, that can develop the housing itself. In this case, the county documents showed that the company that was receiving this land was a nonprofit called Plumeria at Waikoloa, which had just been formed months before and didn't have any kind of history of development of property or housing or anything. It was just a brand new company identifying itself in county papers as a nonprofit. But when you started looking at the Bureau of Conveyance records for this land transfer, this very same identical documents that the county had on its file were changed only to the point of identifying this company as an LLC. So somehow or another, that document had been doctored. And it was, when I started looking into it, it was just very strange how soon after this LLC called Plumeria at Waikoloa took title to the property, it turned around and sold it for $1.5 million to someone who they said was going to develop the property with the affordable housing. It turns out this poor fellow from Minnesota who was roped into purchasing this property, he didn't know the full extent of the obligations that attached to this land. And on top of that, he had planned to build the affordable housing after and only after he was able to build a true value hardware store on it, plus commercial buildings, and that would provide him with the funds, therefore, to start building his affordable housing. I thought this was a pretty outrageous scam. <laughs> and so I wrote about it in 2018, and I even ran an editorial calling for the county council to start exercising some oversight over what the heck was going on in the county housing office. <laughs> so that was how I got into this. Until the indictments came down, though, this past month, did you know that there was this probe that was underway? Well, at a county planning commission hearing that was held after the land was reverted by the Land Use Commission, the owner of these 11.7 acres came before the planning commission. He wanted to get rezoned so that he could move forward with developing the property. When the LUC reverted the land, it became an agriculture zone. Agriculture does not allow true value hardware stores and commercial buildings on ag zone land. So he wanted to get the county planning commission to rezone it. The county planning commission didn't rezone it. But at that hearing, that's when the landowner said that he had been contacted by the FBI, which was investigating this. So that was my first tip off that the FBI was involved in this. And until those indictments came down? Well, yeah, that was kind of interesting because in the meantime, over the last six months or so, I became aware of these two other 
schemes involving the same people using the county to give them these affordable housing credits in order to purchase land, which they then sold and reaped the profits without ever developing so much as a single housing unit. So I started writing about that. I started researching that this spring. And I got in touch with Neil Giotoku, the former housing administrator, to ask him more about what he would know on these two schemes. And that's when he told me he was really disappointed that the FBI had not concluded an investigation. He didn't know where it was. They'd been doing this, to his knowledge, they'd been investigating for three years or so. But I published long articles about these two other schemes in the June edition of Environment Hawaii. And 22 days later, on June 22nd, Alan Rudo signed a plea agreement with the U.S. attorney. So what was your reaction when you saw that? I was shocked. (laughs) You know, I had no idea that this was close to being wrapped up. I didn't even know if it was still a lively investigation. Right. And then we had the other two indictments of uh, the attorneys and then the uh, businessman. The businessman that was in partnership with Alan Rudo, his name is Rajesh Budapati. He wasn't really indicted. Both he and Rudo are the subjects of felony information. And that's when you basically don't need to have a grand jury hand down an indictment because they've already pleaded guilty. As soon as the Rudo information came out and his guilty plea was made public, I knew it was just a question of time before his co-conspirators were subject to federal charges. And that was made public on July 21st, I believe, with the news conference that U.S. Attorney Claire Connors held. And so, gosh, you know, when you heard the U.S. Attorney talk about environment in Hawaii, you've been around for so many years toiling away over there on the Big Island. I have to say, it's not every day that something like that happens. Yeah. Um, it was very rewarding to hear that. This was just beat journalism. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was just going to meetings that are most times, you know, it's watching paint dry. But every now and then, just by being there, you pick something up that can lead to a big story. So I really think that we've kind of lost over the years the whole idea of, you know, reporters having beats and reporters not waiting for press releases to cross their desks. So hip, hip, hooray for beat journalism. Okay. (laughs) That was Pat Tummins, editor and journalist with the long-running publication Environment Hawaii. Tummins credits beat journalism as to how she was able to uncover evidence in a story that led to indictments in the Big Island affordable housing corruption scandal. Check out the June edition of Environmental Hawaii County Council next week takes up a resolution to audit the housing department. The issue of public corruption is high on the minds of voters, and in a race where there is a large number of undecided voters, there is a super PAC, a political action committee, Be Change Now, which began running a blitz of campaign ads targeting House Finance Chair Sylvia Luke. It was trying to link her to a case involving business in Martin Cow. We talked to her about the attack ads this morning. 
it is unfortunate that a super PAC has used smear campaigns as a method to weigh voters in this race. You know, smear campaigns and negative campaigns have no place in Hawaii. You know, this is something that year after year, election after election, Hawaii voters have said, okay, you know, we don't like smear campaigns and we don't like negative campaigns. In this situation, it's by um, Be Change Now. And Be Change Now has used similar tactic uh, 10 years ago, again, Governor Cayetano. And after the election, Governor Cayetano won a lawsuit, defamation lawsuit against this group. And this same super PAC has apologized and had to pay a six-figure fine. In this situation, you know, the insinuations made by the super PAC is even, I believe, even worse. And I think ultimately, they don't care if they have to apologize after the fact. Um, because what they're trying to do is use misinformation to influence this race. In this situation, they're talking about the state giving tax credits to an entity. In that scenario, the state forced a bunch of tenants, harbor tenants, to move. And so instead of giving them an outright grant or a subsidy, we basically said, well, we don't want you to just take the money and not relocate somewhere else. So we told them we're going to give a tax credit because we want you to pay for those expenses and we'll see what happens. So the things that they are accusing me of, it's contrary to what they're claiming because what we did it through tax credit actually was a better approach than giving out an outright grant. So if you compare that to rail, rail is in the process of possessing properties and they're just giving um, cash bailouts. That's what we didn't do in this situation and we took the prudent approach. Uh, public corruption is in the forefront of the minds of voters because we had so many recent cases, you know, with the, the two lawmakers and, uh, you know, the Nabatec uh, official. We have the current Big Island housing scandal that's still unfolding. Talk about where you stand on public corruption and, and what you've tried to do. So public corruption cannot be tolerated. And, you know, individuals caught with public corruption should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. So, you know, you saw the Kealoha case, you saw many city officials now still being waiting for trial, right? So including high-ranking members of the, the city and county of Honolulu. We cannot just rely on the federal government. It seems like, you know, every time we're seeing the federal government and federal authorities coming in and looking at these corruption cases. We need a stronger attorney general's office that will investigate and prosecute these corruption cases. So because of that, I help fund a new unit under the attorney general's office to tackle corruption cases because the state has to do its own part in looking at corruption cases. And it seems like, you know, whether it's a state or there's a bunch of things in the county, the attorney general's office is the head legal authority, and they should also be prosecuting and investigating cases and not just the federal government. And what about on the issue of pensions of convicted felons? Where do you stand on that? So right after the Kealoa incident, we said, you know, people in the individuals who are convicted of a crime should not get full pension paid by the taxpayers. And so we had a bill taking away pensions. Apparently, the attorney general's office said 
it's illegal to take 100% of the pensions only because pensions are protected by the Constitution. So the reality was that they, they, in their legal opinion, they said we can take 50%. So what we did was we took away 50% of the pension. I know one of my opponents is making a big deal about, well, you should have just voted no and not listen to the attorney general's office. In that situation, what would have happened was we don't listen to the attorney general's office. We would be passing uh, illegal bill and individuals who are convicted of a crime would get a full pension. And so that's kind of counterproductive. So in this situation, we said, okay, even if we don't completely agree, we're going to follow the law, do what is um, constitutional and take away 50 percent. We did talk to Ikaika Anderson uh, last week, and you did raise this issue uh, and and felt that uh, you were hiding behind the AG's opinion. But is there anything else you want to say just about, you know, those attack ads, uh, you know, that are running, that are, you know, insinuating that, you know, with the Navitech case and Marvin Cal, you know, trying to link you to that? Martin Cal is being investigated for taking federal relief funds. So that has nothing to do with some of the contributions on the state level. And Martin Kao has made different contributions to other officials as well. And I think throughout my 24 years, I think he made three contributions in the amount of $1,000. So it's talking about $3,000 as opposed to what the super PAC is claiming that I received thousands and thousands of dollars. The other thing is Martin Kao was not the head of Navitech, and then they're claiming that somehow how investigation is linked to this credit. So it's a way to confuse voters and a way to just link up different things to just confuse voters, sway the election. It is unfortunate. Yeah, I believe your, you know, your campaign says that you know, this ad is a mishmash of disconnected facts. And it is a mishmash of disconnected facts. Talk about the funding levels that you're seeing. At the time, I know you put the statement out last week. We were told that uh, the Super PAC had only endorsed one candidate, and that was Ikaika Anderson, and had, right. had spent a lot of money in a media buy. After we passed out a statement, uh, we noticed that the Super PAC had only endorsed one candidate. Subsequent to that, they quickly added other candidates to combat our claim, which um, is reactionary that tells you that, hey, you know, we're calling them on it and they, they're reacting. The unfortunate thing is the Super PAC has now spent about $800,000 on behalf of one of my opponents. That's not considering all the negative ads and all the newspaper clippings. Everything that you're seeing on behalf of one of my opponents is now paid for by the Super PAC. And the Super PAC is now spending $800,000, which is four times as much as what this individual candidate has raised. So it's basically one super PAC self-funding a candidate. And I think the voters need to question what is that going to cost them if they know that one super PAC is controlling the election and the campaign of one candidate. The super PAC, you believe, is punishing you for your rail vote because you wouldn't go along with the uh, with extending the excise tax on rail. This all stemmed from 2017 when I refused to saddle uh, Oahu taxpayers with a permanent GE tax. 
and that was the second bailout for rail because we have to be responsible. And in 2017, I knew that the super PAC had a lot of money, the Carpenters Union and its super PAC had a lot of money, and it could potentially do something like this in the future. But you cannot, as an elected official, you cannot be moved by fear of retaliation. You have to do what is best for the state at that time. And you have to be able to take on the challenges and make tough decisions, even if you believe later on you might be the target of negative campaign or smear campaign. Because in 2017, I had already known that they had done similar things to Cayetano. And I just felt that at that point in time, giving the city and county of Honolulu a permanent GE tax was not the responsible thing to do. And do you stand by that decision today? I do. And I want other people who are running for office to not be afraid of retaliation and to do what is right. And they need to be able to stand up to special interests and they need to be able to look at the interests of the public as opposed to not acting out of fear, not not acting because they're going to be fear of retaliation or somebody doing a smear campaign against that was Democrat and House Finance Chair and Lieutenant Governor Candidate Sylvia Luke talking to us this morning at this critical juncture of the election. We should note that today is the first day that voters can go down to the ballot centers to cast their vote. Our reality check with Honolulu Civil Beat delves deep into Maui's water rights. Uh, it is something that also goes before the voters. Reporter Marina Riker joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Now, uh, to, to clarify, the vote uh, uh, is not for the primary, but for the general? Yes, this is for the general. This will be on the November ballot. And so what is the question? Yeah, so Maui County voters are being asked whether they want to create uh, new agencies called uh, Maui County Water Authorities. So basically, uh, the first one under this proposal would be stood up in East Maui uh, with a goal to pursue state water leases that for a very long time were held by a sugarcane plantation. So the big kind of driver behind this is there's been an effort in the community uh, to push the county to try to take back these water leases. And that's something that if voters decided to uh, push this proposal forward and say yes to the Charter Amendment, the county could be able to create this new government agency that could be able to do that. And we should point out that A and B has been on one side of this issue. Uh, They just recently sold what they're staking um, Mahipono, right, in, in the, the water rights um, issue? Yes, yeah. So they, uh, A&B has for a very long time owned a company called East Maui Irrigation, which a lot of folks here know as EMI. Um, and in 2019, Mahipono uh, purchased 50% of EMI, which is the company that has all the irrigation dishes and also has the water leases from the state. And it's a, a Canadian pension uh, fund, uh, and your your article notes that this fund has been snatching up water rights across the globe. 
Yes, yeah, and and they, that's a that's a backer of Mahi Pono, um, and that has been one of the big talking points in the community um, among folks who are proponents of this proposal. They say they want the county to control um, these water leases, not a private company. And so, uh, uh, talk about the, the the politics and and how voters are going to be, uh, uh, you know, deciding this moving forward. Yeah, so like everything um, right now, I feel like it's it's a really big election year in Maui County. We've got a lot of really important races. Um, and this is something that you've seen all of the mayoral candidates weigh in. You've seen county council candidates weigh in on this. So in our story, I do kind of unpack that a little bit more. There are so many names, but it's hard to kind of get them in in a radio segment. Um, but yeah, so this, is, this has been a big kind of issue for candidates. Um, and then, of course, this will be a big issue for voters um, that they'll be able to read up on and study over the next couple months before they decide whether they want to uh, push this charter amendment forward and if they want the county to establish these new water authorities. And something to consider, though, is, you know, uh, can the county actually make some of the improvements to the infrastructure um, that's badly needed? Yeah, and that's that's been a big concern of the folks who are wary of this proposal is, okay, what, what could it cost? Um, the, of course, the county could take over the state water leases, um, but some folks are concerned that standing up a new government agency will have additional costs, and they want to know more about that. And then, yeah, the big thing is, is the East Maui irrigation system is over a century old in, in some parts of the system, um, and it's sorely in need of upgrades. So that's another big question is, okay, if the county were to look into purchasing that system, what would it cost to make it functional uh, in our modern times um, without leaks and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, it's a, a in-depth uh, article that you've written, and uh, I know at least the, the voters have a couple of months to kind of uh, uh, consider the pros and cons. But thank you so much, Marina. Thank you. That was reporter Marina Riker with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Katherine Cruz. Today, thousands of public school students are back in the classroom, and the day's almost half over. How are parents navigating uncertainty about mass mandates and educational programs? Well, HPR's Casey Harlow is in the studio with the outlook on the school year. Good morning. Morning. Uh, yeah, so like you said, today's the start of the new school year. Uh, some big or minor changes depending on how you uh, view it. Uh, new health guidance from the Department of Education with recommendations from the health department. Masks, optional at this point for indoor settings and kind of optional for any setting in the school. And also, you know, uh, quarantining for close contacts of someone who uh, tests positive, uh, that is completely uh, not, that's not required anymore. And if you kind of turn back the dial a little bit. That's a little bit of a far cry from this time last year where there was a lot of uncertainty. There was, you know, some uh, concerns and anger from parents about, you know, the virtual learning situation or going back in person. Uh, 
in a time where the Delta surge was about to happen or was on the uptick. And so I spoke with several parents, uh, Justin Barfield uh, being one of them. Uh, he had a daughter graduate from Kalani High School last year, and he has a son in the fourth grade, entering the fourth grade today at Ali'i Iolani Elementary in Kaimuki. And so this is kind of uh, his perspective of how the last couple years have been. One of the things about the pandemic in general as a parent is it forces you to constantly make judgment calls where there's not always a guaranteed easy answer. Should I let my kid go to this birthday party? Should I keep them at home? Is it safe for us to go to a movie? Should we just stay home? Every one of these is a judgment call with no real clear right or wrong answer. And that's exactly what the DOE and teachers, and they're trying to make these tough calls, you know, and there's no real playbook or right or wrong answer, and, and everyone has different perspectives on what's right. And one of the things that I've also asked them is, how did your school handle, you know, uh, the return to in-person learning last year? Uh, because it was very much up to the schools of how uh, they notified parents of the check-in procedures or even uh, some of the distancing and um mask requirements in some instances. And so uh, Justin, uh, Mr. Barfield, uh, said his uh, school did a really good job uh, considering the circumstances that they were in. And uh, so kind of looking forward to this upcoming year, a new sense of normal, especially with the mask uh, be masking being optional. Schools uh, are excited to and parents are excited to possibly have these in-person events like, you know, student plays, parent teacher conferences, uh, even open houses or, you know, football games, graduate, everything, everything that a school has. and. But there's still a little bit of concern out there, especially with uh, parents for Barfield. He is uh, cautiously optimistic uh, would be the best way to characterize it. One thing that we've learned, and this is every time we think things are better, you know, COVID's kind of got other plans. and Some new curve gets thrown at us. So while I am optimistic, uh, you know, and I think that things are going to be better this year, I always in the back of my mind realize that there's a chance that things could go sideways again, and then we're going to have to improvise. I've also uh, interviewed uh, a Monica Hu. Uh, sh she's a parent of two at Mililani Malka Elementary. And for her, uh, we actually spoke about this a couple weeks ago of after-school care. Uh, she uh, uh, couldn't, well, last year, her uh, children were waitlisted for her school's A-plus program, and that could have been a variety of reasons, whether it was limited availability, staffing, uh, and this year, she made it a point to uh, get the application in on the first day. And uh, this is where she's at right now. Right now, we're still uncertain if we're going to get into A-plus. They're on a wait list. And that's giving me a little bit of anxiety because I can't plan, right? I can't start to prepare. Both me and my husband work full time. So it's going to be a struggle if come the first day of school and we're like, okay, you guys still aren't on the A-plus. And we're like, oh gosh, here we go again. And we have to scramble to figure out how are we going to care for them after school. So that to me is still an ongoing stressor right now. And you feel for these parents. Yeah, exactly. And so um, as of Friday, she still doesn't know if her children have been accepted, even though uh, she keeps regularly checking online uh, to see if uh, anything has changed. Uh, she's number one and number two of whether her kids will get in. And uh, 
we spoke on Friday, and she says, you know, this is just a continuation of last year. They're going to have to take time out of work to go pick up their kids and then maybe work at home for the rest of the day. And so these are uh, some of the concerns of some parents. Uh, but on the flip side of that, there are a lot of optimism as well. You know, they're looking forward to possibly uh, getting field trips back. Uh, and that's something where, you know, for us, we may have uh, experienced the joys of going on a school bus and going on a field trip. But their kids may not have had that experience for the last two years, or there are kids who haven't had that experience at all. So some parents really looking forward to that as oh, well. Oh, yeah. I mean, first day of school is an exciting time. <laughs> I have exactly. good memories. Yeah. All right. But thanks so much, Casey. Thank you so much. We've been chatting with HPR reporter Casey Harlow. To check out his stories, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, when our listeners have comments or questions about interviews we air, they leave a message on our TalkBack line or send an email to our t- in, uh, TalkBack in, inbox. Families have had a, a lot on their minds going into the school year. And following our roundtable talk with Superintendent uh, Keith Hayashi and Board of Education Chair Bruce Voss, Shelley from Mililani left a couple of questions on our TalkBack line that we forwarded to the Department of Education. The CDC has declared Honolulu County and hybrid, why are we allowing right now the masking to be optional and why is it not more fluid to be optional when our transmissibility is more towards the low end? And Shelley's concern is not unreasonable. Last week, the Centers for Disease Control kept Honolulu, Maui, and Hawaii County's transmission at a High levels, Kauai is at medium. The DOE says it's relying on the guidance of the state health department, its position for uh, K through 12 schools, indoor masking, optional yet highly encouraged, especially since community levels remain in medium or high transmission levels. The new masking policy is in part due because there is widespread COVID testing. Vaccines, including those for children under five years of age, are widely available now, and boosters are also readily available. And the state has high levels of of immunity from the vaccine and uh, from those who have been infected with the virus. Uh, The other thing is that hospitals are also being uh, less impacted. And here's the rest of Shelley's call. Secondly, air purification is not the same thing as air conditioning. So I'd like to know, is every classroom going to be equipped with the COVID funding that we've received from the federal government with air purification in every single classroom? Well, the department says in order to improve indoor air quality, it has purchased a 20-inch box fans for every classroom. It's provided schools with more than 4,000 HEPA air uh, cleaners to increase air exchange, as well as some 600 carbon dioxide sensors. Schools also had an option of building their own uh, air cleaners with special air filters. The DOE notes that there are about 1,200 out of 12,000 classrooms that have central air with limited access to outside air. Another listener, Susan Davis, raised this concern. I want to know what is being done for the children that are three grades behind getting ready to go into high school or complete high school. How are they going to catch up to be able to go to college or any kind of technical course. Thank you. 
Well, the DOE says it plans to focus its attention on evaluating students and addressing their uh, social, emotional, and academic needs throughout the school year. Over the summer, the department provided extra classes free of charge to students enrolled in its schools. It ranged from remedial programs to credit advancement and enrichment programs. And finally, this call from a 35-year veteran uh, Sunset Beach elementary teacher. Hi, this is Rex Dubiel Shanahan. I am so grateful for you bringing on Kihayashi and the new head of the Board of Education. If we just get down to actually what's going on, it's about money. If you pay people more money and their salary is greater and they can live on it, then you will have more people filling the positions that are vacant in the DOE, whether it's the bus drivers, the custodians, the cafeteria workers, and especially the teachers. They're not paying enough money and they have to just put it in the budget. That's what it is. So I just get so frustrated. We don't have this, we don't have that, we don't have this, we don't have that. Well, finance it and you'll have it. Thank you. And thanks for the feedback. Do you have concerns going into the start of the school year? Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 792-8217 to share your thoughts. We're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Today, HPR's Dave Lawrence and astronomer Christopher Phillips review details about distant energy explosions in the universe and Hawaii's connection to them. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we might try and spot in our island skies. We are fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal, welcoming him back to Stargazer right now. Hey Chris, what's in store this week? Hey Dave, good to be back. So this week's stargazers, look out for the planet Saturn in the east after sunset, with Jupiter rising at around 10 p.m. also. The moon this week is passing through its first quarter phase, so conditions should still be great for stargazing. Now, we have an interesting one this week. We always have an interesting one, but Chris has an extra special interesting one this week. It is a local connection to this thing about distant explosions way out in the universe. Yes, an international team of astronomers led by several observatories atop Mauna Kea have been leading the search for mysterious bursts of energy called short-duration gamma-ray bursts. These GRBs, as they are known, are caused when two neutron stars energetically collide. This collision releases a vast amount of energy in the gamma-ray part of the spectrum, and they can be seen clear across the universe. Well, first tell us about the local connection, I guess. Well, our local observatories of Keck, Gemini North, collaborated with other observatories across the world, including some in Chile and even the Hubble Space Telescope, to inform this discovery. And so tell us a little bit more about what they found. Well, they found that these short-duration GRBs may have been more common in the past, and these earlier events helped propagate heavy elements throughout the universe, elements such as gold and platinum. And this is uh, the same stuff we mine on Earth to make jewelry, correct? It's the same stuff. In fact, when you wear 
wear a piece of jewellery that is made of gold, silver, platinum, whatever, you are actually wearing the remnants of a cosmic supernovae, or in this case, a collision of neutron stars. Who knew? <laughs> Apparently you did. <laughs> and as for the elements, they really wouldn't exist without these explosions basically taking place. That's absolutely right. It takes the most extreme astrophysical events to forge these precious metals, as well as other important elements that make up our planet and even life. We and everything around us is made of star stuff. Another useful and informative stargazer with you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the offices of the Liliuo Kalani Trust, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. Big Island resident Cheryl Brost is one of a handful of Hawaii-based athletes competing in the CrossFit Games this year. It'll be her ninth trip to the global fitness competition, the most of any athlete from Hawaii, and only four short of the all-time record. She's also a two-time Games winner in the women's 45-49 to 49 category, winning gold in 2016 and 2017. So what drives her to continue to compete at such a high level into her 50s? Well, the conversations Russell Subiano caught up with Brost as she prepares for the games from her home in Waimea. What drives you to continue to want to compete at this level? You know, I feel like I've always competed in something just about my whole life whether it was youth sport from when I was age five or my sister and I showed horses. I was started that like at age eight, all the way through my freshman year in high school. And I showed and competed at the national level. Then I got really involved with playing soccer and basketball were my main sports in high school and continued on to college. So yeah, I just liked competing. I liked training for something. I had a great college experience at Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma, Washington. I got to play for four national championships in soccer, and we won two of them. And so after college, I kept playing soccer for a little bit with women's teams or co-ed soccer leagues and stuff like that. You know, we just show up and play, mm-hmm. you know, play the game. But we didn't really practice or train, you know, together outside of the games. And so I was kind of missing that team unity and camaraderie, training, working hard together, you know, Mm -hmm. outside of a game. And some years later, I think it was about, it was like December 2009, my girlfriend who I'd known through playing soccer, and our kids were then playing soccer together, she had told me about this thing called CrossFit. It took me actually a couple months to take her up on her invite to go to a class with her. But finally, December 7th, 2009, I remember clearly because it was Pearl Harbor Day, and that was my first day at CrossFit. This was still, I was in Eugene, Oregon, and I just fell in love with it right from the very first workout. Are there other games athletes that you train with, or do you kind of just have your program set and you train on the Big Island? A little mixture of both. I've had, for about eight years, I had the privilege to be able to train with Albert Police. He's no longer competing, and he's gone to three games. I also have been a longtime CrossFit Invictus member. Mm -hmm. 
as I kind of transitioned into an age group division competitor, CrossFit Invictus came out with a master's program for their master athlete community. What I've noticed the difference between their competition program versus their master's track is basically just a little less volume on some of the lifts, core lifts, a lot more mobility and activation in everyday programming, making sure that us masters are staying as limber and loose as possible. Because as we age, you know, we may not like to accept it. It does take a little bit longer for us to recover. For those of us that are older than 40, you know, headed towards Mm -hmm. their 50s, we find that as we get older, our metabolism slows down and our bodies perform in a more limited capacity. What's your secret for continuing to be able to perform or, or compete at a high level? Well, a lot of people say, oh, she's just, you know, got good genetics and so forth. You know, my family is very typical of a lot of American families. There's obesity, there's disease, there's cancer. It runs heavy through my family. So I think, you know, you're given the genes you're given, but I think there's a lot that we can do as individuals of living a healthy lifestyle and what we put into our bodies really makes you who you are. We have control over that, basically. You know, there might be some genetic type of illnesses and so forth that, you know, run through the family. My mom's a breast cancer survivor. My dad died of lung cancer. My grandparents had both had heart disease. Thankfully, you know, I've been fairly healthy other than, you know, injuries. It sounds like there's not one, you know, like secret magic pill or anything, but it it does sound like getting your exercise, eating a healthy diet. Healthy diet. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and and taking... You know, and I've gotten a little bit into... I'm not a great reader. I always fall asleep when I read, (laughs) it seems like. But I've gotten a little bit into listening to podcasts and and such. Mm -hmm. I enjoy that. And in Big Island, we got usually, you know, a good amount of drive time, you know, if you're going places. You know, I'm always trying to learn and educate myself a little bit about our bodies and how they work and how to get them to function better and aging and recovery and all, you know, all sorts of stuff. But I think diet's crucial. Sleep is crucial mental, trying to live a stress-free life, if that's possible, all these things that contribute to our overall wellness. What's your favorite part of the games? What do you look forward to the most? Ah, I think one of them for sure is the camaraderie of the competition field. CrossFit is, in a lot of ways, a real unique sporting community. Most often, the competitors are very friendly And uh, just a general mutual respect, knowing what it takes to prepare for that day, the competition and the push that each other give one another. That's pretty cool. And of course, like if everything's going well, you always enjoy finishing the workout and feeling good about it when everything's firing on all cylinders. I mean, nothing better than knowing that you did your darndest and you just, you know, crushed that workout. That's an awesome feeling. What's the thing you look forward to the least? Is it the swim? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. Like people are like, oh, you know, Cheryl lives in Hawaii. Uh-huh. You know, we got beautiful access to the ocean and it's just, I'm not a fish. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't have gills, <laughs> but it's probably, yeah, the least favorite event. And 
lately, you know, they've had the game since 2017 in Madison, Wisconsin, right. and it's not like swimming in the ocean there in the lake. Yeah. <laughs> you can't yeah. see three feet in front of you. <laughs> um, you know, there's seaweed that's draping around your neck. <laughs> I know it doesn't make much sense, but I wish for swimming and rowing and wall balls. I wish I was six feet tall and <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> had uh, just a you know a Greek goddess type body with with swimming through the ocean. But I'm I'm five foot two. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. So, Burpees must be easier for you. They definitely are. Yeah. There's many, many things in CrossFit that things are a lot easier for a body my size, that's for sure. Thank you so much for your time, Cheryl. Yeah, thank you, Russell. That was nine-time CrossFit Games athlete and two-time Games winner Cheryl Bross talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. The 2022 CrossFit Games start on Wednesday, August 3rd in Madison, Wisconsin, and runs through the 7th. That is it for today. Tomorrow, the first Airbus from Japan touches down in Kona since the pandemic shut down. What do you think about the return of this segment of tourism? Uh, Call our talk back line. Uh, Miss something and want to listen back to something else you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.